Good morning, church. Good to see you. Good to be with you. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. That's where we'll be today. Those of you at home, we're glad you're joining us online. And we are going to dive in. We're going to look at uh, chapters 15 through 17, but we're going to focus in on chapter 17. I'm going to give a little summary of 15 and 16. But before I do that, let me ask this. I wonder, what do you think about when you think about thunderstorms? How many enjoy a good thunderstorm? Yeah, do you remember, did you enjoy it when you were a kid? Because I remember being a kid where I grew up in Texas. Thunderstorms are a little bit scary because we were on the plains where I grew up. And so they, they could just roll in out of nowhere. They came fast, they came furious. And when they came, they really came. Uh, and so you'd get, you know, lightning and thunder. And I just remember being kind of scared as a kid. Now I enjoy a good thunderstorm. And so as you think about thunderstorms, here's a little bit of information. We'll see if you know this or if you don't. Some of you might be aware. Did you know that the lightning is, uh, the thunder in a thunderstorm is caused by lightning? Did we know this? All right, so let me give you a little bit of information about that. The thunder is caused by the lightning. The lightning heats up the air around it whenever it comes down to 48,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, the air around lightning heats up to 48,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That is hotter than the surface of the sun. And when it comes down, that level of heat causes the air around the lightning bolt to expand very, very quickly. So hot air expands. It expands so quickly that it expands traveling out at close to the speed of sound and then contracts at an equal speed because the cooling down effect is so fast once the lightning is gone that it contracts back and that expansion and contraction causes the thunder. That's where the boom in thunder comes from because the air particles are moving that fast. Now, a couple other interesting facts. The Empire State Building, did you know it is struck by lightning on average 23 times a year? It makes you think twice about going up in the Empire State Building, doesn't it? And that's nothing compared to this place. Look at this. This is called Lake Maracaibo. That is in Venezuela, and it is in the perfect place where it is the center of all lightning on the planet. More lightning strikes here than anywhere else on the planet. And interestingly enough, when lightning strikes, it produces ozone uh, particles, and so it actually helps create more of an ozone barrier on our planet, which is cool, right? And so lightning strikes here. Here's how frequently the lightning strikes here and the thunderstorms come. 28 lightning strikes per minute for nine hours at a time, almost 300 days a year. Think about that for a moment. So that picture looks intense. That's nothing compared to what actually happens there. We're lightning striking 28 times a minute for nine hours straight for almost 300 days a year. What a fascinating place. People live there, by the way. I'm not sure about that, but they do. Now listen to this. Think about lightning and thunder and the elements and how we react emotionally to them. Job chapter 38, verse 25. God is speaking to Job, and here's what he says. He says, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? See what God is saying to Job there. He's actually encouraging Job, trust me, I know what I'm doing in your life, even though you've gone through all this really horrible stuff. He says, I am God alone. And evidence that I'm God alone is that I'm the one that's controlling where the thunder comes and where it doesn't come. I'm the one that makes the channel through which it comes. I'm the one that controls the rain and when it comes and how it comes and where it comes. I alone am God. What we learn from that is that the, God's control of the physical elements and his sending of them is one of the pieces of evidence in our universe that God is the only God, that he is God alone. So when we see a thunderstorm, when we see lightning, one of the things we're meant to think is only God can control these types of things, right? 
That's part of what we're meant to see. Now, as we turn to 1 Kings chapter 17 today, what we're going to find is that God is declaring through a new person that's brought on the scene in the book of 1 Kings, and his name's Elijah, and he's one of God's prophets. And through Elijah, God is declaring that he alone is God. He is both declaring and demonstrating. As a lightning storm, as a thunderstorm, is a demonstration that God alone is God, that's what we're meant to think. That's essentially Elijah's job in the scriptures is to declare to a group of people among whom idols have taken root that God alone is God. In fact, if I had to summarize the ministry of the Old Testament prophets, it might be a fitting way to describe the ministry of Old Testament prophets as we see them, including Elijah, that their job was to demonstrate and declare that God alone is God above all idols and worldly philosophies. So in the same way that lightning and the rain are one way God demonstrates and declares that he alone is God, in today's text, we'll see that. And here's what I want you to know. God isn't just declaring that through Elijah. He's not just declaring it through lightning and thunderstorms and sending rain. He wants to declare it through you, his people, that he is committed to raising up voices in the world, particularly where idols have taken hold of human hearts and minds and thoughts. He is committed to raising up a group of people for himself that will declare that he alone is God, not the philosophies of the world not the things that people worship, like money and power and sexuality, but that he alone satisfies, that he alone is worthy of your faith, your trust, that he alone is God. So let me give you a little bit of context. I need to get you caught up on some background. Let me say, if, you are, uh, if you're just joining us here and there, we're so glad you're here, but this story builds on itself. So I wanna encourage you, perhaps go back and listen to some of the previous weeks where we have unpacked the story of 1 Kings because uh, you really do need to let the story build upon itself. So in chapter 15 and chapter 16, here's what's happening is that we are seeing transition after transition from one king to another. So we left off and we saw the division between the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, and Rehoboam reigned over the southern kingdom and Jeroboam reigned over the northern kingdom. Now, starting in chapter 15, what we get is quick transitions of power, particularly in Israel. There's one faithful king in Judah. His name's Asa, and he reigns for 41 years, but he is the exception to the rule. In fact, his faithfulness and longevity on the throne in those chapters is meant to demonstrate how unfaithful all the other kings are and therefore how short their reigns are. There's kings that reign for seven days. There's kings that reign for two years, but no one stays long. It's transition after transition after transition. In fact, we might say the theme of chapter 15 and 16 is impermanence brought on by a lack of faithfulness, right? So, but the point of those chapters, essentially, they build to get to one king in particular in, north, in the northern kingdom in Israel, and his name is Ahab. And he is going to be the king that we're going to be, that we're gonna have on the throne for a while. And we're gonna watch who Ahab is and what he does. And in particular, Elijah's ministry is built on the background of Ahab's reign. Now, how would you like this? We're tracing all these kings and about almost everyone we hear, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's not a fun description of your life, right? No one wants that description. Well, Ahab gets this tacked onto that description, but none did worse than Ahab. He did worse than every other king who came before him. So here's what we have so far. We are building in unfaithfulness to the point to where Ahab is now the pinnacle demonstration of a lack of faithfulness among the kings of Israel up to this point. We're gonna get one more who's worse than him in the days ahead, but he is the worst up to this point. How many of you, raise your hand, you're thinking, I love that description of my life. If you could just put that on my tombstone, I'd be a happy camper. Probably not. 
So Ahab is the worst. And so we've built in these chapters up to Ahab. Now, one of the reasons Ahab is considered the worst is he marries a woman named Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is a colloquialism in our day, or at least it was maybe 20 years ago. It's probably not as current anymore. But it, it was at one point a colloquialism for the unfaithful woman. It was the, the stereotypical unfaithful woman. And there's a reason for that. It comes from 1 Kings. Jezebel is a, is a princess from the area of Tyre and Sidon, which is just north of Israel. Ahab marries her for a, political expedient, a politically expedient reason. He wants peace with his northern neighbors. So he marries Jezebel. Now, what's unique about Jezebel is that she is not just any other princess. She is a deep commitment to an idolatrous relationship with a false god whose name is Baal. And when she becomes the queen over Israel, she is deeply committed to entrenching the worship of this one idol, this one false god among the people of Israel. She wants the rejection of Yahweh, the one true God, and she wants the acceptance and the worship of Baal. <coughs> so, Elijah is going to burst onto the scene in chapter 17, and I wanna read the story to you in just a moment. And then I wanna show you uh, a couple of lessons from his life and from this opening chapter as it relates to the story of Elijah in the scriptures. But here's what I need you to see. The background of all that Elijah is going to do is the reign of Ahab and the reign of Jezebel who are actively doing more to try and bring about idol worship in, their, in the nation of Israel than any other pair, any other king and queen before them. And so when Elijah comes onto the scene, his job is to, as we just said, is the job of all the prophets, to declare to the people and to Ahab and Jezebel that Baal is not God, but that God alone is God. That's the work of Elijah. So let's dive into the story, shall we? And through them, we learn that that is still our job. In any time, in any place where idols are reigning and grabbing hold of human hearts, God is committed to raising up not just Elijah, but you and I to declare that he alone is God. So let's read chapter 17 together. It goes like this and see what we can learn from Elijah. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty 
until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, Lord, my God, why? Or, sorry, oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing your son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. It's a powerful story, yeah? A couple of, couple of lessons we wanna take away. I wanna give you, they're gonna be sort of snack-sized bites here. How do we take up this same kind of voice that God calls Elijah to have to declare that he alone is God? What can we learn from the beginning of Elijah's ministry to help us take up that same kind of voice? So here's lesson number one. Lesson number one is that God is committed to raising this kind of voice up when false gods are taking hold of hearts. Now, the way that we see that in the text is if you were reading just through 1 Kings, Elijah's coming onto the scene would, be, would seem like it was out of nowhere, out of left field, because you're reading about one king after another, and the focus is clearly on these kings, on their lack of faithfulness, on what God is declaring to the people through them, but the focus is nowhere on the prophets. We get a little bit of a prophetic thing in chapter 13, but they're a sideshow. And then from this point forward, the focus will shift from kings to prophets. Ahab will fade to the background, the kings fade to the background, and the prophets rise to the forefront, Elijah, and then after him, Elisha. In fact, when we say Elijah is, is a Tishbite from Tishbe, biblical scholars still don't know where that is. It's like saying this guy's from Podunk Nowhereville, and no one is sure where he came from or why he's here. He just shows up, he bursts onto the scene in chapter 17, and he's doing miracles. You know, where did this come from? And the point of that, as you read through the flow of the text, is that God is saying, you wanna know how committed I am to getting rid of idols among my people? I raise up voices out of nowhere. Now, you and I, we, if you've grown up in church, you've heard the name Elijah a lot, right? Elijah is actually considered the prophet par excellence. Think of all the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Think of Amos, right? Think of Joel, all these prophets and all the things that they did and they were mighty and often we might think, wow, you know, if, but if you were to ask any Israelite within, let's say, a thousand years of Elijah's life, hey, who is the prophet par excellence? Like, who is the greatest of all the prophets? Do you know who they would answer? Elijah, without exception. They would answer Elijah, Elijah was supposed to be a forerunner of the Messiah. That's why God, that's why Jesus declared that John the Baptist was 
uh, sort of uh, the spirit of Elijah was in John the Baptist. He was declaring, prepare the way for the Lord. Elijah had this really important role when the people got, he's unique. We're gonna see that God raises him to heaven. He never dies. He's raised into heaven without physically dying. So Elijah is unique from among all the prophets. But the thing that you and I don't realize or recognize is that he comes from nowhere. He's not somebody that anybody would have, would have expected. And what we're supposed to learn from that right out of the gate here is that God is so committed to raising up a voice to declare that he alone is God when idols have taken hold of the hearts of human beings. So the question for us then is, are we willing to do that work? Now, let me say a word about prophets because we need to understand Uh, I need to say a word about prophets and about sort of interpretation of Old Testament to make sure that we're biblically solid here, okay? Three things that prophets are called to do. We already said that we could summarize their work as saying declaring that God alone is God, but they do that in three ways, through demonstrations and declarations of power, of love, and of mercy. Power, love, and mercy. We're most familiar with power. When we look at Old Testament prophets, we see them perform miracles. We see them do things like we've seen in this chapter. Elijah raises the dead, right out of the gate in his ministry. That's a pretty strong start to your ministry, right? So we see them often coming to the people and telling them where they're going wrong. That's why we often think of a prophetic voice as being a correcting voice and then demonstrating through power, through the manifestation of God's power through them, that that their message is valid. That's why we see so much power flow through prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right? And through Elijah and through Elisha, who's gonna have a double portion of the anointing of Elijah on him. So we're gonna see all these demonstrations of power. And that's gonna be very sort of normal for us as we go through this work. But, so that means when God raises a prophetic voice in this day and age among his people, the church, we should expect that there would be demonstrations of power in that way and correcting words. But there's something God reminded me of this week as I studied. Because I often think about the prophets that way. They demonstrate power, they correct people, they're not afraid. There's a cost that comes with that, but they're unafraid to tell people where they're going wrong. That's often what the prophets are doing. But one thing that was brought back to my mind as I read and studied and prayed this week is that prophets also demonstrate God's love and his mercy. They demonstrate his love because they are human men standing between God and his people and saying, God wants to talk to you. God has something to say to you. It's a demonstration of his love that he wants to come close. He wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to know what he has to say. If you love someone, do you talk to them? I sure hope so. (laughs) Not much a demonstration of love if you cut off relationship and don't talk to somebody. That's not love. Love is going towards people. It's moving towards them. It's speaking to them. It's wanting to know them and wanting them to know you. And that's one thing God is saying through the prophets. He's not just declaring correction. He's declaring love by speaking to his people. Everybody with me? Does that make sense? It's gonna be very important for us as we think about taking up this voice then we recognize that it's also a declaration of mercy because those correcting words are corrections so that the people don't drive off a cliff. He's saying, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. He doesn't have to warn them. He could just be silent and let them go their way of destruction, but he doesn't do that. He says, I want you to repent. I want you to change. I want you to turn around. Friends, he might be saying that to some of you today. The direction that you're walking may be a path of destruction, and he may be saying, turn around. In fact, if you are walking in a way counter to his ways in any area of your life, it by definition is a path of destruction, not a path of life. And he wants you to turn around. He wants you to stop going that way. And that's his mercy. Do you see it? That's his mercy. So prophets declare the power of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. 
Now, let me say one other thing as we look at the Old Testament. I want church, this is super important. It's very tempting because Israel was a national people of God. They were a physical nation that was the people of God under the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament. But the clearest connection between Old Covenant and New Covenant, when we think about the people of God, is not to run from the nation of Israel to an application to our own nation in this day. We as Americans, as United States Americans, are not the chosen people of God as a nation. Now, just like every nation God raises up, he has purposes and designs and uses nations to glorify him. He corrects nations that don't glorify him. We see that throughout the scriptures. He does it with Egypt, he does it with Babylon, he does it with Assyria, and he does it with Israel. But the thing I want you to recognize and remember is don't be quick to run to the application of anything we see God speaking to the nation of Israel being a correction to our nation in our day and age. That may be appropriate at points. It's not always inappropriate to be sure. Where a nation rejects God's ways and walks counter to them, there's ways that God would speak to that nation and say, change your direction. Fair enough, yes? But the first application point always for the people of God when we study scripture, just good biblical sound interpretation principles is when we see the covenant people of God in the old covenant, the nation of Israel being spoken to in a corrective way, the first application of that should always be the church under the new covenant, not our physical nation. Yes, that's the first place we apply. It may be appropriate to apply it, but we don't wanna slip into this way of thinking that says, oh, in the same way Israel was the people of God in the old covenant, my nation that I live in is the people of God under the new covenant. It's not always appropriate to take whatever God says to Israel and apply it to our nation, it's not. Sometimes that is misleading and it leads you into this you know, misconstruction of the way to interpret scripture. So I just, I want you to see that because we're gonna be getting into these prophetic words and I don't want you to go, oh, God said it's Israel so he would say it to America. That would be a misappropriation of God's word. First ask, it may apply to our national context, but first ask, how does this apply to me as the new covenant people of God, the church? yes. With, almost without exception, every prophet speaks first to the people of God and only then do they speak to the nations around the people of God, the world. And they do. Isaiah, remember when we went through Isaiah? If you were with us as a church, we went through Isaiah. God spends a lot of time correcting Israel, his people. And then after he does that, he corrects Babylon and he corrects Assyria and he corrects Egypt. He's not afraid to do that. He does it all the time. So he speaks to our nation. He speaks to our world. But first he speaks to us. Fair enough, yes? All right, wanna make sure we have that down. All right, so that's lesson number one. God is committed to raising up this kind of voice. And so the question for us becomes, are we willing to be that voice? He's calling you to be this kind of voice, to speak about his power, his love, and his mercy, to say that he alone is God. Lesson number two, demonstrating the impotence of, the impotence of idols will be a big part of the work. Demonstrating the impotence, the powerlessness of idols will be a big part of the work of this kind of voice. So if you notice, right at the outset, Elijah goes to Ahab and he says, there will not be rain, there will not be dew. In other words, there'll be no form of moisture in this land until I say so, which is another way of saying until God tells me to say so, because Elijah just does what God says. Then after that, he goes into the area of Sidon. Now, both those things are really important, and here's why. Because who is Jezebel and who are Ahab trying to get the people to worship? Which false god? Who did we say? Baal. Now, you need a little context because Baal was a storm god in the ancient Near East. In other words, he was seen to be the one who controlled the rain. And during the drought season, here's the way the people who worshiped Baal thought. They said, well, 
Baal's God, but once a year when the drought season comes, he gets murdered by another God whose name is Mott. And it's not until somebody comes in and can revive Baal. I mean, what a God, right? Until someone can revive Baal. And once he's revived, that's when the rain comes. So we're just waiting for him to be revived. They need an excuse for why the rain wasn't coming because their God was a storm and a fertility God. Now, so what is Elijah doing? Immediately, God's word through him. The first thing we hear him say is, there will be no rain, there will be no dew until God declares there will be rain. So what's he saying? Baal is not God. God is God. God alone controls the elements. He alone sends the rain, not Baal. Then as if to double down, once Elijah is sent off to the brook of Cherith and then it dries up, and then it said he went to a widow of Zarephath, which is in the land of, does anybody remember? Sidon, we just read it, come on, guys. In the land of Sidon, and Sidon is the home of Baal worship. It's where Jezebel comes from. Tyre and Sidon are twin cities in just north of Israel, and it's a region where it's the, it's the heart of Baal worship. So in other words, what we find is that he's not just causing a drought in Israel. God, who is God alone, is causing a drought in the home of Baal worship, in his seat of power. In other words, he goes right to his home and he says, you're not in charge here either. I'm not bound by the national boundaries of Israel. I'm not just God in Israel. I'm God over the whole world and over every nation, and I'm gonna show you that. That's what God is demonstrating. You miss that sometimes if you don't have a little bit of the geography, but that's what God is saying. He's demonstrating that Baal has no power, has no authority, and we're gonna see an even greater demonstration of that because next week we're gonna have a cage match between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's gonna be awesome. Two men enter. No. 500 men enter. One man leaves. Now, Demonstrating and declaring that God is God alone involves showing his power over the things that people are worshiping. So here's my question to you. Are you prepared and can you explain why God's ways, why God's design of sexuality, of gender, of ethnicity, of handling money, of handling power, can you explain why his ways are better than the ways of the world? If someone asks you, well, why is God's design of marriage and sex within marriage, why, is that, why does that bring blessing? Why does that bring benefit? Why is that good? Why is that right? Why is that not just withholding? Why is that not just God being a prude? Why is that rich? And can you tell them why? Because you need to show them the beauty and the glory of God's ways and show them the impotence of the ways of the world. There is no fruit in it. There is no blessing in it. You know you declare the ways of God not to be some self-righteous, pious person. You do it because God loves people and his ways are good. He wants them to thrive. He wants to bring reconciliation and restoration to them. And your heart and my heart should beat for them to know it. The reason the world does not understand why God's ways are better to them, they're just limiting and restricting and difficult and hard, and what we're saying is, oh, there's freedom to be found. Like a river gains power from having banks, so we gain power and fruitfulness from boundaries in our lives that are put there by a loving God. Can you tell them why it's better? You need to be able to tell them why it's better. Lesson number three, the calling is costly, but God will provide. The calling to declare that God alone is God in an age filled with idols is costly, 
and it's costly when you declare it to the people of God, the church, and when you declare it to the world. You might think it's more costly to declare it to the world. It's usually not. It's actually more costly to tell it to the church because the world just ignores you usually. The church will attack you, unfortunately, if you speak with a prophetic voice. Now listen, it's our job to root out the idols from among us with gentleness, yes, with gentleness and love and mercy. Can we say that, yes? But to identify them and not take hold of them. Now listen, it's costly. Look at what happens to Elijah. The very first thing that happens is he declares to Ahab, there's gonna be no rain. And then the very next words are, and he said, you need to go hide. Why does Elijah have to go hide? Because it's dangerous to do this work. It's dangerous to say, I'm gonna be the one who's gonna declare when God will send rain. Well, if you're Ahab, what do you want to do to Elijah? Yeah, you wanna kill him. You're not a fan, right? And so he runs off. But then immediately, what do we see? God provides. He sends him to a brook east of the Jordan, in other words, out to the wilderness. And he sends him and he puts him by a source of water where he can drink. And then he sends ravens to feed him. Now, let me say a word there. God provides. I'm sure if you asked Elijah, getting food from the mouth of nasty birds would not have been the first choice. If you said, yeah, that's great. And I hope they chew it up and spit it in my mouth just like they do with baby birds, right? That may not be history. Sometimes God provides in a way that might not be our preference, but he provides. He provides. That's what he's doing. And then as if to say, my provision doesn't even stop there. The brook dries up because the rain is not coming, as Elijah said. And so he sends him again to Sidon, to the center of Baal worship. And he says, this woman who doesn't even know me, who doesn't worship me, who doesn't follow me, who doesn't acknowledge me, she's gonna be the one that provides for you. In other words, I can make provision for you anywhere. I can make provision for you in any way. So friends, we learn two things. It's costly to declare that God alone is God but you have to be willing to pay that cost, but you can know and rest in the fact that God will provide as you do. God will provide as you do. Now, you cannot wait to figure out how God is going to provide before you start speaking. Go where God sends you. Speak what he gives you to speak and trust the provision will come as you do. Lesson number four, have faith. Be full of faith because there is nowhere that God's power doesn't reach. Excuse the double negative there. <laughs> but there's nowhere that God's power doesn't reach. So follow the story again. The first thing we see is he's provided for and then he goes into the land of Sidon. And so what we've learned so far, if you're just following the flow of chapter 17 is, okay, God is not just in Israel, he's in Sidon. He can provide in supernatural ways. We're seeing his power. But then the next thing that happens is the widow's son dies. And the question that should be on everybody's mind is, okay, God, you're not just God in Israel. You're God inside and we see what you're doing with the weather. In fact, you control the weather, but can you reach down into death? Or is there a boundary to your power? Is there some limitation to your power? Is there anywhere that your power cannot reach? And the answer of the text is a definitive no. My power has no limit I can not only cause the rain to stop or to go, I can reach down into death and bring life. That's who I am. I am the God of life and the God of death. You with me? That's what he's declaring. So have faith, friends, because one of the things we're supposed to learn from this story, from Elijah's life and his ministry, is there's no boundaries to his power. There's nowhere where he will send you where his power is not going before you. There is nowhere you, you can go 
in the name of God to declare that he is God alone, where there is such a dearth of his uh, spirit and his presence that his power is not there. There is no place where his power is limited. Wherever you go, no matter how dark, no matter how out there it seems, his power is fully present in that place. Have faith. There is no limitation, no boundary to his power. And you know what I take from that, friends? Let me say that, particularly to my younger friends here, don't limit yourself to only Christian contexts. God is raising up this kind of voice to declare that he alone is God, to demonstrate that he alone is God for the arts and for the marketplace and for education, in, every, in, in medicine, in every field, in every endeavor, in politics and in law. He doesn't want just preachers. He don't want just people who work in churches. He wants you where you are to declare to the world that he alone is God. Your work is more important than my work. My job is to equip you so that you can go everywhere and declare that he is God and he alone. You have opportunity. Listen, I know some of you are discouraged where you are, but you're there on purpose. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that you are a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or an administrator. It's not an accident. God has raised you up. He has sent you there and he wants your voice to declare he alone is God. He is alone in power and control and sovereign. He is full of love and full of mercy. The voice of Elijah through you. Lesson number five, we must do what God says even when it costs those we love. It's one thing to pay a cost ourselves to say that God alone is God. It's another thing when it impacts the people we love, isn't it? Now, we learn this through the widow. As he comes to her and she loses her son and she goes to Elijah. Oh, sorry, before that, before that. When, when uh, he comes to her, the reason she says, I'm gathering some sticks with a little bit of oil I have, with a little bit of flour that I have, I'm gathering it to make some cakes for me and my son and then we're going to eat it and die. In other words, they're starving to death. And what does Elijah say to her? He says, go ahead and do what you said, but first make a cake for me. In other words, go against every motherly instinct you have. I'm asking you to feed me before you feed your own child who is on the brink of starvation. In other words, your family must pay a price for you to obey what God has said. And in faith, she does it. I mean, think about how miraculous it is. She's, she doesn't know Yahweh. She doesn't know who Elijah is. She hasn't seen him do anything miraculous. And she trusts and she believes. And in trusting and believing, rather than it, it looks like it's gonna be a massive cost to her son, but what does it do? What happens next? The flour and the oil do not run out. They are provided for her. In fact, through her faith, she provides for her whole household, it says. Now, what we're supposed to learn there is that it's not just she and her son and Elijah that gets fed, but probably, we're not told, but probably a whole household of people come in now and are provided for because she trusts the Lord. You know, friends, here's what I wanna say to you. As God raises you up to declare that he alone is God and to demonstrate that he alone is God, it won't just cost you it will cost your kids. It will cost your parents. You may have to go places where he sends you. 
You may have to stay places that are hard to stay. You may have to say things that ostracize your family and cause you to feel like outsiders. As you do that, know this, it will cost the people you love, not just you, and you need to be prepared for that. Don't shrink back. Go where God sends you. Parents in particular, your job is not to protect your kids in safety and make their life comfortable. It's to teach them how to have faith in Jesus. It's to teach them that wherever he sends you, if you will go, he will provide. He'll provide the friends you need. He will provide family around you. He will make a way. The greatest gift you can give to your family members is to teach them the joy of following Jesus wherever he sends you to declare that he alone is God. Parents, don't be led around by the no's, by the wants and desires of your children. Lead them to faith. Lead them to trust. They won't always like it. They will push back. You have to lead. You have to shepherd. With great tenderness and gentleness, you have to go where God sends you. Don't shrink back. You will bless your family. I feel the weight of that for you, and I love you. Number six. Our declaration of God's power must be matched by our demonstration of his love and mercy. So a lot of this prophetic work is declaring God's power, but I want you to see that in God's provision for the widow in the story, what is God saying? He is not just declaring, I'm God alone and I'm powerful over all these false idols. He's saying, I love people who are worshiping these false idols. This woman more than likely is a Baal worshiper. She lives in Sidon. It's the home of Baal worship. We have no reason to believe she worships any other God but Baal and maybe a few others, but she doesn't worship the true God. And God saves her son and God provides for her and God uses her to provide for Elijah, his servant. What he's saying is, I love people who worship false idols and I want them for myself. I want them to know and be reconciled to me. So friends, we cannot get so caught up in declarations of God's power and authority over all the false idols of the day that we don't match those declarations with demonstrations of love and mercy. Those demonstrations of love and mercy need to be there with declarations of power. Are you with me? Do you understand? It's so important. Take it up. We cannot be like Jonah. Do you remember the Jonah who resists going to Nineveh? Why? Partly probably because he's scared, because they had a horrible reputation of doing horrible things to people who said bad things to them. But not only is he scared, what we find at the end of the story is that Jonah is saying, I knew that you were merciful, God. And I knew that if I went and declared to them and they repented, that you'd forgive them and not destroy them. And I don't like it. Jonah is a story of failure of a prophet. Not just reluctance, but failure. We cannot be a prophetic voice like Jonah. We need to match our declarations of power overworldly philosophies with declarations and demonstrations of love and mercy. Number seven, last two here. We must be bold in prayer. I love that in this story, 
We have no evidence that Elijah's ever done anything like this before. Again, he just bursts onto the scene. We don't know anything about his background. And he's bold enough to pray that God would raise the dead in this story. Now, you and I, we know Elijah. So we're like, well, of course. You need to recognize this may be the first thing he's ever done. And he's going, okay, well, I just spoke to a king, some really scary words, and then I ran and hid. And now I'm gonna be bold enough to go before God and say, God, do not take this life but raise it, raise it up. That's a really bold prayer. And from that, friends, I think what we can take is that if we are going to demonstrate and declare that God alone is God, we've gotta pray bold prayers, bigger prayers than you and I are probably currently praying. We have to pray for the salvation of the lost, for our neighbors, for our family members, for massive revival, that God would move in power in our workplaces, that God would soften hearts, that he would raise literally the dead spiritually to life that he would draw them unto himself. And we've got to pray and pray and pray. We've got to persevere in prayer. And when we get tired of praying, we've got to go pray some more. We've got, to, we've got to be in our prayer closet and begging God for massively big things. I don't ever want any of my people to pray, God, would you just? I hate that. Because it's like saying, well, God, I don't know if you care that much or if you can even maybe, maybe you could just do this. Just eliminate the word just from your prayers. Stop saying it. Say, God, please do this and ask for big things. Ask for big things. Yes, ask for the small needs of your life too, okay? Pray over the details, 100% but don't pray these shrinking violet sorts of prayers. Remember what the book of Hebrews tells us. We have over us a great high priest who has granted us access into the presence of God, into the holy of holies. We now are able to behold God in Christ Jesus and we are told that we may come boldly before the throne of God. Look, if I just got up here and said, yeah, you can go boldly before God and God hadn't said it, then you should really question me. But God himself has said to you, come with boldness before me. So I'm just passing on the message, fair enough? Go with boldness, not with small and, and shrinking kinds of prayers. Lesson number eight, we will have the joy of seeing people believe in Jesus. You should expect that as you declare and demonstrate that God alone is God, that you will have the joy of seeing people believe in Jesus. Now, you and I don't control that, but we should be filled with expectation and faith that God will actually save people, that God will actually bring new life. I know it can be hard sometimes when you labor long in a field and it seems like there's not fruit being born, but keep moving forward and with expectation that God will rescue and redeem. Notice what was the capstone of the whole story? Elijah raises her son, and then what does the widow say? Now I know that you are a man of God and that the words in your mouth are the words of God. In other words, now I know that your God is God alone. She believes. Remember that in Luke chapter four, Jesus refers to this story. And what does he say? He says there were, he's just spoken, everyone's spoken well of him. He's read from the scroll in his own hometown. And then he says, a prophet's not without honor in his own hometown. And he uses this story as an illustration. And he says, I tell you the truth, that in the days of Elijah, there were widows who were in need in the nation of Israel, but God sent Elijah to the widow in Zarephath because God was showing that he loves people who worship false gods. 
That's why he sent Elijah there. And what's the people's response? They want to kill Jesus for it. They don't like that Jesus is saying, he doesn't just love you, he loves these people who you hate. That's what Jesus is declaring. We should expect that he is reaching people everywhere. Every people group, every nation, he's on the move. Your neighbor, your family member, your friend, your coworker, not beyond the power and the mercy and the love of God. Step up and be the voice that declares God alone is God. Now, friends, in all of this, we have a resource greater than you could possibly know because Elijah is just a foretaste of a prophet to come whose name is Jesus, who is not just a man who stands between God and the people and says, here's what God is saying. He himself is that message come to us. He is the prophet and he is the message. He is not just a prophet who talks about the love of God. He is the very demonstration of the love of God in going to the cross for us. He is not just a prophet who declares the power of God. He comes into the world and controls the waves of the sea and says to them, hush, be still, and they are still. Not only is Baal not in control of the elements, Yahweh is and his son, Jesus, comes and declares power over those elements and not just power over the rain and power over the storm, but power over death. He doesn't just reach down into death like Elijah and say there's no boundaries to the power of God. He himself goes into death and comes out the other side victorious. He is the one to whom Elijah points. He is the mercy of God who enables you and I to receive forgiveness. Doesn't just tell us God is merciful, turn around. Says with repentance, there is forgiveness forever that you would be reconciled to God and made right with him. And you know him. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are his and he is yours. If you walk with him day by day, he will show to you how to declare that God alone is God. He will raise you up to declare the mercy of God, the love of God, and the power of God to a world lost in idol worship and to a people of God who have allowed those idols to take hold of their life at different points and whom God is committed to raising back up to be his and his alone. Let's pray together and then we'll worship. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it points us to you. Our desire is that we would see you and have affection for you rise in our hearts, that our minds would be more solidified in your truth. Thank you for the way that your word is able to come with great precision into each one of our circumstances and situations and inform those because your word is living and active. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for that living word. We pray now that as we ponder it, sit with what we have heard, Holy Spirit, that you would continue your work now in applying it to our lives and we yield to you. And our first act now in response to your word is to praise you. Receive the praises of your people from our hearts, not just our mouths, but let our hearts and our minds be stayed on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.